Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. Good reviews and ratings are amongst the most effective ways for an independent podcast like this one to break away from the pack, and you can even do it while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, The Orphans Part 3, we'll be continuing with our ongoing series of orphan films, movies that were the sole release from their individual distributors. Our first film today takes us all the way back to the end of the 1970s. Disco was on its way out, and New Wave was becoming the new queen of the music scene. And in 1979, there were fewer big names in music than Deborah Harry. While many people in 1979 knew her for her songs like Heart of Glass and One Way or Another, Harry also had aspirations of becoming an actress. As we would see in the Blondie videos from the era, the camera loved her. She was beautiful and photogenic and charismatic. And yes, even at the age of 11, I had a mad crush on her. But one person who could see past the public sex symbol to the artist within her was painter and filmmaker Marcus Riker, a graduate of the same school, the Rhode Island School of Design, where David Byrne and Chris Franz would dream up the idea for Talking Heads, Riker had just completed a short film produced by Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones that they had wanted to make about French actor and theater director Antony Autou. When Riker came up with the idea for the next movie he wanted to make, a crime mystery film based on the Cornell Woolrich short story Union City, The Corpse Next Door. Reichert would reset the timeline of the story from the 1930s setting of the original story to the mid-1950s, but he would keep the general storyline, which was about an accountant who becomes obsessed with who keeps drinking the bottles of milk that are normally left in front of his apartment every day. Despite the film's period setting and need for period-authentic clothing and vehicles, Producer Ron Mutz and Graham Bellin worked with Reichert to come up with a budget of only half a million dollars. Initially, Mutz and Bellin had some trouble with funding the project, even with Deborah Harry attached to play the put-upon wife of the accountant, who was driven into the arms of another man because of her husband's preoccupations. The film would also feature Dennis Liscombe who, despite being nearly 40 years old at the time, was making his film debut in the leading role, and Everett McGill, who would need to finish his role as the building manager who becomes Miss Harry's character's lover by a certain date because he was due in the Scottish Highlands for his role in Jean-Jacques Anoud's Quest for Fire. Reichert would also cast a young actress and singer in a small role that only appears at the end of the movie, who, soon after filming was completed, would go into the recording studio herself to record her first album. Pat Benatar's In the Heat of the Night would become a big seller in the fall of 1979. But at this point, neither she nor Harry were world famous yet. The producers would find the money, and the production would begin around New York City in December of 1978. Parallel Lines, the third album by Blondie, had been released the previous September, and three singles had already been sent out to radio stations, but none of them had gained any traction with the music fans. 
Even if Picture This or I'm Gonna Love You Too or Hanging on the Telephone had started climbing the charts, most people would not have recognized the young actress on set as the lead singer in Blondie, as Harry had let her dyed blonde locks go back to their natural dirty brown color for the movie. But then, her record label put out a fourth single from the album in January 1979, and that song, Heart of Glass, would change the direction of of Miss Harry's life forever. And while everyone working with her on the film was happy for her newfound success, it also put the production into a scramble. Her record label, Chrysalis, needed Deborah Harry the actress to become Deborah Harry the new queen of music right then and there. The band needed to start capitalizing on the success of the song. So the production schedule would need to be changed to accommodate the new demands for her time. For the producers, this seemed like a godsend. Their little indie movie with a bunch of no-name actors had now a bona fide star. Production would finish at the end of January, a few weeks after they would finish shooting with Miss Harry, and Reichert would spend the rest of 1979 editing his film into shape. The performances were uniformly great, and Ed Lackman's cinematography was beautiful. The film would look and feel like it was made in the 1950s, and the producers were champing at the bit to get the completed film in front of potential distributors. And many distributors wanted the film, especially if it would feature a new song from Miss Harry and her band. Chris Stein, the lead guitarist for Blondie and the life partner for Miss Harry at the time, had been signed to score the movie. But one of the provisions put upon the production before shooting began by Blondie's record label was that the movie could not feature a new song by the band. This would help the production get both Miss Harry and Mr. Stein at guild minimum rates, helping to keep the budget down, but would be a deal-breaker for most distributors. One company who didn't flinch at not being able to market the film without a new Blondie song was United Artists, who was still one of the biggest film companies around at the time. They loved the movie, but they were concerned about the material being rated R. The producers, without telling their director, decided to recut the film in order to secure a PG rating because the PG-13 rating would not be created for another four years. But once that cut was delivered to United Artists, they would decide against picking up the film. The director would lobby the producers to put the excised footage back into the film, but Movie Lab, the company who had processed the original camera negatives, had misplaced and possibly mislabeled that footage, it would never be found. In early 1980, the producers would, in an attempt to try to lure a new distributor to the film, submit it to the Cannes Film Festival, which accepted it into its prestigious Director's Fortnight program. While a number of critics would praise the film when it premiered at the festival, the producers still could not secure any distribution deals so they decided at the end of the festival that they would distribute the film themselves, at least until the success in theaters showed distributors what they were missing out on. So the production company, Kinesis Limited, would quote-unquote sell the film to a quote-unquote new distributor, Dalton Filmworks, and they would book the film at the 8th Street Playhouse in Lower Manhattan to open the film on September 26, 1980. The reviews for the film from the New York City Press Corps were pretty good. The Village Voice would call it one of the best independent film since Eraserhead. 
while the New York Times and the New York Post would both go all in on Miss Harry's acting. And according to Dalton's film's ad in the October 15, 1980 issue of Variety, the film had grossed $18,237 in its first week, which would have been a decent if unspectacular debut from a brand new distributor, their first time out of the gate. And in the second week, the film grossed another $15,000. But the film would only last one more week at the 8th Street Playhouse before it was bumped out for a special run of Wings, the silent Best Picture winner of 1927 with live music accompaniment. Strangely, especially for a film with not one but two major music stars in its cast, the movie would not play in another theater for ten months when Union City would make its Los Angeles debut at the Continental Theater in Hollywood and the Monica Fourplex in Santa Monica on Wednesday, August 5, 1981. The Los Angeles critics were just as kind to the film and to Miss Harry's performance in particular, but just like in New York City the previous year, the film would disappear after only three weeks. Now, remember a few moments ago I mentioned that the band was contractually obligated to not do a song for the film? Ironically, Miss Harry actually wrote a song while shooting the movie, which was based on her experience acting in the film. The song, Union City Blue, would be recorded during the summer of 1979 and would appear on their album Eat to the Beat released at the end of September 1979. The record label, which had prevented the band from doing a song for the movie, would release the song inspired by Miss Harry's experience working on the film as a single in late November 1979. It would not chart in the United States, but it would hit number 30 on the hot dance music charts 15 years later, when Radiohead released their cover version of the song. The movie would be released on VHS tape by Columbia Pictures Home Entertainment in 1982 and on DVD by Fox Lorber Entertainment in 1998. But despite the fact that the film is now under contract to, of all companies, MGM United Artists, it's not available on any streaming format or any other format for that matter. But you can find it on a very popular video website, at least in January 2022. Just Google Debbie Harry Union City Movie and you should find it right away. Just be careful as the first video that will pop up in the search engines might be a German dubbed version of the film and not the English language version. By 1980, Sally Kellerman had been one of the busiest actresses working in Hollywood for the past decade, thanks in large part to her Oscar-nominated role as Margaret Hotlips O'Houlihan in Robert Altman's M.A.S.H., and in 1980, she would be featured in no less than three big Hollywood movies, including a churn as Jodie Foster's mom in Adrian Lyne's Foxes, and a six-times-married eccentric woman in the Martin Mull-led satire serial. But she would also frequently work on independent movies in both America and in Canada. One such film was Head On, a Canadian drama in which Kellerman starred alongside frequent David Cronenberg collaborator Stephen Lack. Kellerman plays Michelle Keyes, a Toronto psychoanalyst who is married to an inattentive businessman, always traveling out of town on business trips. Lack plays Peter Hill, an art professor at a Toronto college. The two don't know each other until Peter and his Mercedes convertible crashes head-on into Michelle's Mercedes convertible as he tries to avoid a truck that is backing out into the street. At first, they bring legal action against each other, but they soon find themselves attracted to each other, or more specifically, 
attracted to the bizarre game of sexual perversity that they find themselves in, which, with each encounter becoming more twisted. Directed by first-time filmmaker Michael Grant, head-on would also star, of all people, Oscar-winning filmmaker John Huston as Peter's artist father. Now, if head-on sounds a bit like the David Cronenberg 1997 movie Crash, which itself is based on the 1973 novel by J.G. Ballard, it's merely coincidental, at least according to writers James Sanderson and Paul Illich. Michael and Paul's fetishes here are neither car-centric or as graphic as those in Cronenberg's movie. The film would make its world premiere at the 1980 Toronto International Film Festival, before playing at the 1981 Berlin Film Festival, where it would compete for the festival's coveted Golden Bear Award. And the film would open across Canada at the end of December. But in America, the film would be ignored by distributors for more than three years, until a company called Green Tree picked up the film for distribution. Who Green Tree was, I cannot find any information about but they would release the film on six screens in Los Angeles, including the Fox Theater in Hollywood and the Westwood Four in Westwood, on September 13, 1985, under the title of Fatal Attraction, the same day Vestron Video released the movie on VHS, which would help the film get some traction at video stores two years later when the Michael Douglas Glenn Close movie of the same name opened in theaters. And like many of the movies we've been talking about for the past two and a half years, head on, also known as Fatal Attraction, has never been released on home video since its one and only VHS release, nor has it ever been available for streaming. But if you really want to see it, at least in January 2022, there is a copy of the VHS tape available for viewing on a popular video website. Just search for Sally Kellerman Fatal Attraction in Google and you'll find it right away. Our third and final movie this episode is Wired to Kill one of literally a thousand low-budget dystopian sci-fi movies that would get made and released during the decade. What's so memorable about this one? Well, nothing, really. But if you're a fan of the recently passed actor and wrestler Tom Tiny Lister Jr., this is a movie you might be interested in as it features one of his earliest acting roles. Or if you're a fan of Merrick Buttrick from Star Trek The Wrath of Khan or Square Pegs, this would be one of the last movies he performed in before his passing in 1989. To describe the movie, I'm not going to give some brief summary, but word for word, the pre-credit scrawl that opens the film. Ready? Here we go. In 1992, quarantine zones were established to contain the deadly virus Tapex. Now, in 1998, the plague is over, but the zones remain. These areas are cut off from society and are beyond the law. Terrorist gangs inhabit them and live by randomly raiding surrounding communities. For the ordinary citizen in 1998, the only art is the art of survival. At any other time in history, that might sound pretty craptastic. But in early 2022, that could just end up being our own future if things don't get better but I digress. There isn't a whole lot of history available about Wired to Kill. The production shot in and around Fontana, California in the summer of 1985, hoping to cash in on the dystopian movie craze of the day. That the producers tried to sell it as some kind of road warrior clone when it had none of the qualities which made that film a global success is probably a good reason why it never sold to a legitimate distributor. 
judging from the poster, which played up the non-existent Road Warrior content, or the newspaper key art, which just showed a bunch of the bad guys standing around doing nothing, you'd never know that there was a robot at the center of this movie. Or how it's more of a Johnny Five from Short Circuit gone vigilante to avenge an attack on the robot nerd who built him and his granny by the psycho future gang. But lead actor Devin Holscher could never be anything close to Road Warrior era Mel Gibson, and Merrick Buttrick is doing his best I'm the son of James T. Kirk impression that he should have left behind in Star Trek III. Lead actress Emily Longstreth is pretty, but mostly ineffective as the not-quite-damsel in not-quite-distress. A company called American Distribution Group would open Wired to Kill in 52 theaters and drive-ins in Southern California on November 14, 1986, and it would be gone from all of them by Thanksgiving just two weeks later. Film critic Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times couldn't really be bothered to even come up with an actual review of the film, just a pithy 190-word summary of the plot, which finishes pointing out how director Frankie Schaefer's artistic and intellectual pretensions tend to make the message of his movie even more unsavory. For lead actor Devin Holscher, this would be his only film appearance. After a TV movie called Independence in 1987, and an appearance on the popular CBS show Cagney and Lacey the same year, he would never be seen on screens again. Longstreth would enjoy a few more years of work in front of the cameras, most notably as Kevin Bacon's girlfriend, in Christopher Guest's first movie as a writer and director of The Big Picture, but she pretty much disappeared after 1980. Frankie Schaefer would make a few more movies, including Rising Storm with Zach Galligan of Gremlins fame and Baby on Board with Judge Reinhold, but he would be out of the film industry after 1992. And once again, like so many of the movies we've discussed on this show, Wired to Kill has never been released on home video since its original late 1980s VHS tape. And like so many of the other movies we've talked about, you can find a copy of that VHS tape online at a popular video site if you search for Wired to Kill 1986 movie in Google or that other website's search bar. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 69. John Sayles in the 1980s is released. I had previously announced that our next episode was going to be about the 1981 film They All Laughed, but it was announced while I was recording this episode today that its director, Peter Bogdanovich, had died. Rather than appear like I'm trying to capitalize on his passing, we're going to move that episode to later this year. Look for that episode this coming March. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movies we've covered this episode. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.